Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Probably too many distributors invest too little in their people and to their business. We love what we do. So we genuinely have a lot of joy. Follow up. Don't forget to follow up. Follow up again. Follow up again. Follow up again. Everyone on the team is sort of focused on like, how do we create that bottom line that's as big as possible? At a monthly interval, we have company meetings where we discuss the profitability from the previous month. We recently were named an Inc. 500 company, so one of the 500 fastest growing companies in the country. They're, they're awards we've earned, but if you don't apply for them, you're never going to get them. The voices you hear are from professionals who have achieved a substantial level of success in the promotional products industry. Anytime you delve into the topic of success, you are met with your own admission that you haven't figured it all out, but you have learned a thing or two and you can pass on even just a few tips that might help a fellow entrepreneur. That was the purpose of our panel at Skew University held at the ASI show in Chicago, to explore the path to 10 million and to share from our experiences how to achieve growth from breakthrough moments to the advice of mentors, proactive selling versus reactive selling, overcoming margin pressure, and even the topic, what is success? Our guests are Ann Vidro, CPA and co-founder at Creative Studio Promo, Minda Wright, National Account Manager and co-founder at Creative Studio Promo, Mitch Silver, Vice President of Marketing for Printable Promotions, Johanna Gottlieb, Vice President of Sales for the Midwest for Access Promotions, and Tim Andrews, President and CEO of ASI. Today's episode is courtesy of CommonSkew, the effortless business management platform that empowers you to process more orders and grow your business. For more information or to start your free trial, visit commonskew.com. And now to our panel discussion, The Path to 10 Million. Ann and Minda. So we started a series uh, on CommonSkew about the, the stages of business growth, this path to 10 million, what it takes to get to 10 million in sales. And one of the articles we worked on together, and I collaborated with Catherine on this, and Laura, and honestly, it was mostly Catherine's material that I kind of wrote. We discovered five stages in a distributor's growth. You know, the first was market validation. You, you start your business, someone buys from you, and it's an exciting experience, right? Number two is repetitive proof. You start getting that experience over and over again. And then number three is this investment. This is where you've grown, you've probably recruited some folks, and now you're investing money back into the business, both in terms of personnel and in terms of profit. Number four is scaling. Now you're really getting into investments and really growing the business. Number five is organizational specialization. What that really means is you'll find that the distributors start to specialize in certain areas whether that's incentives, whether that's corporate store programs, whatever it might be, you'll find they start growing in these unique specializations. Often the client dictates that path for you. That's the fifth stage. And so all of us have experienced various stages in this journey. I would like to start with Ann and Mende and with you first. So in this article, The Five Stages of Business Growth, you checked out the article. Which stage do you relate to the most? And do you recall any of the previous stages in your journey? And where are you kind of now in your business growth? All right. So, um, you know, I think we are somewhat at the scaling, I would say, but it's funny because we're also a little bit in organization specialization. Um, you know, we've, I think we've been a little bit through the market validation, repetitive proof, you know, investment. 
So um, the one that we wanted to talk the most about, I think, was the market validation because mm. I think that uh, is, you know, we're, we're fairly new in this business. We've been in the industry a long time, but Menda and I five years ago started a company together. We'd worked together for probably seven years before that. Um, and we, it took a while for us to uh, get our name out there and um, build some credibility. And the quickest way we did that was applying for awards. So uh, we recently were named an Inc. 500 um, company, so one of the 500 fastest growing companies in the country. So they're, they're awards we've earned, but if you don't apply for them, you're never going to get them. So that's thanks to Bobby. He actually had given us that tip to try to apply for because we were growing so quickly. And uh, along with a lot of, um, we're certified women-owned business we've been you know recognized for that a lot of for quite a bit a top um, one of the top 50 companies to watch in the state of Michigan so you know again it's you know that gave us credibility out there not only because of our background with our clients that we've done business with a long time but now we're out on our own well why should they trust us and that just kind of put a little feather in our cap so mm -hmm. we felt like that was um, really key to part of our success then do you want to comment on that as well? Oh, no, I think Anne really covered it. I just want to um, include part of the, the market validation. We said, um, who do we really, who are we focusing on? And, and Bobby mm. being our mentor at the mm. beginning, um, he suggested some of these, and, and he was the one who suggested the Inc. 500. And people are, are shocked that we have that Inc. 500. So you know what we do? We take that, and we put it on everything. <laughs> everything we have has that Inc. 500 on our signature line. We have all of our employees put Inc. 500 on their signature line. It's all free press, right? I mean, you, get, you win an award, or even if you're nominated, if we are nominated for something, boy, we put it out there. We were nominated because that gave us really traction on the ground because people, well, you've only been in business for five years. I'm not, do I trust? Oh, but look at all these awards that they've won. And the industry has a lot of awards that you can apply for. You just have to go for it. Hmm. Awesome. Uh, Johanna, as you look back on your career, can you define one or two critical breakthrough moments in your business? And sometimes, for some of us, many of us actually, breakthrough moments can come around because of catastrophe. You can lose key personnel, uh, you can lose a major client, and it's, it's ironic how some of our, the greatest seasons that we grow to come out of some adversity. They may not have been catastrophic, but have there been seasons in your yeah. career? So I've been with uh, Access for over 11 years, and I remember a year or two into it, I had been working for two women who were both managing very large books of business, very different books of business, and I was sort of learning the industry. And I knew it was something I could do on my own. I had, was eager to find my own accounts. I had an interest in prospecting, which is, I always say, the only reason my boss likes me, because I love prospecting. It's <laughs> uh, a true, true story. And I knew it was something I wanted to do. So I kind of spoke up and was vocal. I, I always say Axis allows you to speak up and let your voice be heard, but you need to make it be heard. So I let him know this is something I want to do. I don't even know if it's socially acceptable, but I think I should stop working for someone and perhaps work a little bit under you and build time for myself to build my own accounts. And, and he listened and um, there was a big step. It doesn't seem like a big step, but I felt like it was a kind of brave step. And it worked for um, many reasons. And then a year or two later, 2008 came, and I don't need to tell anyone in this room that was a hard times. The world fell apart. We were in New York City. A lot of crazy decisions were being made fast. Axis was fortunate that you know we didn't have to take such a hit where we were firing left and right, but we certainly felt a lot of our financial clients you know whimpering away, and we had to make some decisions among our staff. So 
it was a time where we felt like strategically, I remember having conversations with Larry that it was a time where I wanted to build and I wanted to prospect and nobody had dollars. Everybody's marketing budgets were closed. It was the first thing to go. So we talked a lot about sort of calling people and sending things and, and reminding them that you know, budgets were closed now, but in a year and two years, when things were picking up, you would have an empty closet and remember who had sent you that creative mail or who had been there to talk about brainstorming. So we would go into meetings and not talk about products. We would talk about partnership and value and what we could bring so that there would be a reminder to call us when those budgets were open. And it, it really worked for us. I have to say, I remember we spent some money. We um, made the right moves. We did a lot of cold calling, a lot of prospecting. And that's probably when I built my largest book of business. It's mm, a great story. Mitch, you have your business, you've worked a lot on your internal infrastructure. You've spent a lot of time and energy on that. How has that impacted your growth? What kind of stability did that give to you? And why did you focus on an internal infrastructure? And if you can give us an idea of what that looks like as well. Sure. Um, it's interesting because, you know, if you think of this in terms of food preparation, I mean, you wouldn't really go out and sell the food till you figure out exactly how to cook the food. So we found out that our best plan of attack was to build up a big, strong back shop operation so that we could then go out and get sales and be able to handle that amount of business coming in. Um, over the years, this is our 24th year, not quite 25 yet, Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have um, sort of taken on this attitude that we really are working to live rather than living to work. And mm. so while the topic of today is you know, how to get to 10 million, mm. I would ask everyone to question themselves, like what, what, is, what happens when you get to that number? And the truth is, any, at any size, you should be able to visit your son or daughter's recital not have to miss that, not miss soccer games, not miss school performances. And if you structure things in a way that you can offer this work-life balance, you'll find that you end up having employees who are happier and you end up experiencing more success. And I think the things that we've done that have really helped us the most to get to this work-life balance is things related to efficiencies. And two of my team members, Stacy and Jenner over here, and they've been with us for a while and, and they could they could unequivocally say that that is the centerpiece of our business is how do we squeeze more efficiencies out of what we're doing? So all of us in this room probably sell promotional products and we all probably get asked the same questions over and over again. I need an idea for something. Can you share that with me? Well, the questions you have to ask are always the same. What's the price category? What's the price point you're looking for? Who's the, who's the target audience and what's the quantity? So if you can create efficiencies by creating email signatures using Outlook or quick parts in Outlook, you'll find yourself being more efficient in your everyday use of, of technology. Um, the other thing that I think we do pretty well is that we've created a, a margin grid for the whole office so that everybody in the office will give a consistent answer when the client says, how much is that? So we simply take the cost of the net cost of the product times the quantity, and that gives us a number that we then look at a grid and are able to share that. So I think these efficiencies make it a little bit easier than sort of running around with your head cut off trying to say, well, how much am I supposed to charge them? And then it just creates some efficiencies throughout the office. And then also related to this, I would say narrow down your, your preferred vendor list because I find that often that makes it much easier to train a new employee that's coming in because then the, the list of choices that's of huge. products is a little bit smaller. It's huge. So. I have a question. Yes. <laughs> so um, the margin is really interesting. Are you... Obviously, it's different clients have different needs. Are you okay with everyone charging the same thing to all clients, or are there certain clients you're going in at a lower rate for? You know, in general, our margins are very strong. We tend to stay in the low 40s, and I think it, 
there are exceptions. I mean, every salesperson has the ability to sort of say, I don't want to do that. I want to mm -hmm. do my own thing. But I think in order to, and Bobby knows, I, I say this all the time, but sales feed egos, margins feed families, right? Yeah. So right. the key here is if you maintain that margin, you're able to do a lot more stuff for your customers in terms of gifting and yeah. staying in touch with them and things like that. So you know, and, and on that note, we, we use as an industry, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I think this comes from a 30-year-old, 30, 40, 50-year-old practices where we measure success by gross sales and, ironically, number of salespeople which now the landscape is just, so if you ask people, you start talking about as a distributor to another distributor, one of the first questions that'll come up is, you know, they never, they, it's kind of rude to ask what your gross sales is, you have to wait a while for that one, but somebody will always ask headcount, as if that's a metric of success, but really what we're talking about, we don't talk about well-being, we don't talk about peace of mind, if you went through that recession, you understand a whole lot different, and I joked earlier that 2000, up till 2008, I was a top line guy. You couldn't find, I couldn't find the bottom line if you led me there. Uh, after 2009, I became a bottom line guy. And also well-being and peace of mind became far more important as a metric in how we measure our businesses. And another point you made, um, I know a distributor who does 20 million plus and 70% of their spend is through 30 suppliers. And I can't tell you the peace of mind that can buy you if you can do it. It's very hard work, but that's something you can do. Tim, you have a very unique vantage point. You see the entire industry. You process all this research, all this data. Are there similar factors in a distributor's success that you have seen, both not only what ASI yields in terms of their research, but what you personally have noticed in anecdotal feedback from friends and folks that you know in the industry? I think one. there, there are two things. One is... I think successful distributors listen. And while that sounds very simple, I think that in the world we listen too little and we talk too much. And we ask a question and then we are in our mind thinking about the next question we're gonna ask the person and we aren't actually thinking about the answer they're giving us. And so I think successful people, whether they're a distributor or supplier or decorator, whatever the role is, is they really genuinely are trying to listen to the answer to the question that they posed. And, you know, I think the second piece is investment. So I look at this list and I was sort of saying, I knew I wasn't going to be asked that question, but I was like, gosh, where would I put ASI? You know, ASI was <laughs> founded in 1950. The Cone family purchased ASI in 1962. And so where would I put ASI? I would put us on number three investment. Because I think that every business, every entrepreneur needs to keep reinventing themselves and going back to number one and coming back through the cycle a bit. Mm -hmm. And whether it's for your whole business or whether it's for a product category or it's an area you're in, you know, I think that we are very much in that number three right now in terms of what we're doing as a business. So listen and remember that when you get to five, you're not finished. You've got to sort of, it's like, it's like your hair, Bobby. You've got to rinse and repeat, <laughs> right? So A lot. A lot. <laughs> uh, uh, you threw me off. I wasn't listening. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I so, neither rinse nor repeat. <laughs> I double rinse and repeat. So, speaking of investments, let's get it off of me for a minute. The investments, uh, Tim, are you seeing, when you see distributors investing back in their business, is this, and this is a really basic question, is this technology predominantly? Is it personnel? Are you seeing shifts in the way that they're investing in people, in salespeople versus internal infrastructure? Yeah, a great question. I think that probably too many distributors invest too little in their people and to their business as I would define it. And so when I look around um, most distributor networks or groups of distributors, I see people that are older, not younger. 
I see people that I look around this room and you know we are all uh, of one ethnicity basically uh, maybe there's one or two people here or not we, we as an industry are not investing in younger people and by younger I mean under 25 and we're not investing in a business model that will support those people so they can't only work at you know commission only kind of a world and secondly we're not reaching out to people that are not like the majority of the people in the industry we've got to have outreach as distributors and suppliers to people that are not like all of us. We don't need, you know, I'm 55. We don't need any more 55-year-old white guys in the room, okay? What we need, thank you, Samantha. Um, you, know, um, you know, there are eight, there are eight states in the United States where English is not the first, is not the majority language of, of people. And so we've really got to be thinking, you know, from a business perspective, what do we do to bring in people that are younger than we are, that have different experiences than we have, that are much more diverse, because that's the world we're selling to, and it's the world we're yeah. serving. And so you can't really serve a world you don't know. So I think that's really an important area for us to invest in. Yeah, and that fits right into the growth discussion, because you're going to grow personally as well as professionally. It's going to impact you in so many different ways. Uh, I'm going to jump back to another topic on, on metrics that we measure for success. Um, and Johanna and Mitch, I'll turn to you guys for this. Are there other metrics than gross sales? Uh, what's, or do you have, a, I think I know Mitch's answer, but do you have a key metric? You're like, this is the metric that I live by. Is that net profit? Is that gross profit in total? Is that annual? Is it quarterly? Is it by client? You know, it's interesting. I mean, really, the only thing that does matter is the bottom line. I mean, that's, that's right. sort of what we're getting at here. And everyone on our staff is empowered to make decisions related to that. So, for example... Um, on the front end, the sales support team may actually contact a supplier and say, hey, we're working on this big project. I need to make sure we land it. What's the best pricing we could have? So there's that extra bit of margin even beyond EQP. The second thing is um, we're pretty good about keeping the coupons that vendors send us. I mean, that's 40, 50 bucks at a time hmm. for free setups. Um, uh, we can, our, our design team actually can figure out ways to create artwork that is in a way that we could charge our client for it. Um, and everyone on the team is sort of focused on like how do we create that bottom line that's as big as possible. In fact, to the point that on monthly, at a monthly interval we have company meetings where we discuss the profitability from the previous month. And uh, so everybody can see that what they're doing is contributing to that bottom line. Is that a percentage so, or is that a total, total amount? What are, you, what are you sharing in terms of numbers with, um, with the team? So they, they can see relative to the previous month okay. if we went up or year, down. Year over year, quarter over quarter. Yeah. So it's not a specific growth. number, but right. it's like, okay, so our sales were this, our operational yeah, expense awesome. was this, right. here's right. the profit. Okay. And uh, it's to the point where everybody gets a, per, it's, gets a we call them blocks. So the number of blocks mm -hmm. dictate how much bonus everybody gets at the end of the year. Yeah. So more blocks, more bonus for awesome. the team. Love that. Johanna, any other metrics you want to refer to? Uh, I mean, we, we are part of PureNet, so that allows us some buying power right there. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you are part of Access, you're really well-educated and well-versed on the benefit of using PureNet members. A couple of people here have talked about using those key partners. So we do have key suppliers that help us get the bottom line dollar and bring up profit. Um, IGC as well, we're part of an international gift panel where we can work you know, all around the world. I'm sure you've all had a need where your client doesn't just need something to ship to Illinois or New York and needs to go to Mexico City. So we have some great partners for that. Uh, and then, you know, again, I think same deal. We have a staff that completely understand what our goals are, what our vision is. We're not so hard on teams. We work in team silos about meeting X amount this month or being penalized for not making 100,000 one month or whatever it might be, as long as profits are up, people are working together, people are working smarter. We're using new systems now where we can see a little bit more this visibility on what teams are doing and constantly working with other teams with, on tips on how you're 
you know, order count is so high and your AR is up, your AR is low, or kind of just using each other for those resources. Anyone else want to comment before we leave this topic on metrics for success? No? Okay. Uh, Johanna, why you have the mic? You're sitting across from a salesperson who has at about 500,000 in sales and they feel restricted and stuck and they want to grow. It's a broad question, but what is your advice to them? I, I feel like I was that person, so this is a good question. Um, Joan is in, Joan is in our, is our company and she has mentored me for a long time and she used to remind me the value in speaking with your clients and asking tough questions and really got to me to, me to where I am today, so I thank her for that. But we talked a lot about not just staying in one market and really utilizing your client to get the referrals. I think look at your work, look at what you've done. Right now, there's a lot of tools out there to be able to categorize and um, document your work. So I use Pinterest a lot to kind of show projects and what we're working on. And take pride in that. I mean, we have a showroom, I'm sure you all have a showroom where you can walk in and see case studies of what other people are doing. So when you feel stuck and you think, how can I get to that next level? I haven't done anything, I haven't done enough. First, think $500,000 is a lot of money. So give yourself a little bit of a pat on the back. Mm -hmm. And then look at the work you've done. Look at what your clients are posting about the, the work they've done on their, on their social, whether it's face, um, Facebook or Instagram. And then look at what your colleagues are doing. Look at the campaigns they've done, the campaigns they've run. People are posting about this all the time. There's a lot of value in that. And so if you kind of get out of that stuck mentality and think about other markets you can work with and work for and brag about the work you're doing, I think that's another way to get to the next level. Use your current clients to grow within that account. If you have one great client that has one division you're working with, there's probably 10 other people that don't know about you. So yeah. get the names of those people. Send them fun mailers. Follow up. Don't forget to follow up. Follow up again. Follow up again. Follow up again. The relentlessness. relentlessness. That's awesome. Yes. That's awesome. Uh, Ann and Mendo. Uh, Tim, can you pass the mic on down here? You know, um, I, I recently read a quote by um, Steve Jobs, who, and he said, if he could name one particular attribute that a salesperson should have, it's persistence. And I think that's the only reason um, we have some of the accounts that we have is, is the persistence and the follow-up. And trying to teach that, and I don't want to... Jump topics, but trying to teach that to yes. a millennial. Go for it. It's really difficult. <laughs> you know, pick up the phone. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, so, no, I, I, and referrals are golden. Referrals are truly golden. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to grow an account you already have than to get a new account. Absolutely. So ask within, what other department can I talk to? Could you, you know, yeah. um, uh, walk me over to meet Sally over in this department and get that face-to-face -face and, and grow the accounts you already have? Yeah. And, and I'll, 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 I got another question for you, but on yeah. that topic, the best time to ask for a referral is when you've delivered that miracle order and yeah. you do it all the time. And when that client goes, oh my God, you saved me, that's when you ask. Yeah. You don't go in and ask for a referral on the first of, Jan of, of the month because that's when you go ask for referrals because you're going to say, is there anyone else I can sell to? And they go, um, I don't really know. It's when they feel obligated. It's when they feel like they want to do something for you. And the timing is ideal. Sometimes I love it when a client has to cancel at the last minute because then they feel like they owe me and I'm definitely going to get that next appointment. <laughs> so a question for both of you. Uh, how do you keep yourself motivated? 
So we had fun talking about this because Amanda and I feed off each other. Our personalities, we've worked together for a long time, and just being together motivates us. But um, part of it's talking about the dream and the vision and how do we make that happen. It's also meeting with our team. So we do a lot of lunches, a lot of internal meetings, not just to meet, but to keep that fire burning. And we can tell sometimes when we haven't, either her and I haven't met for a while or we haven't met with the team, you can start to kind of feel it. And then we get them all back together again. We, we do things like we raffle off um, certain samples that come in or even from Office Depot, you know, you get the Keurig <laughs> machine in and we do spin the wheel or we draw the names and we just keep the energy really high in the office. And that keeps everyone motivated, I think. The other thing I was telling Menda is I have this little game I play with myself. So, um, and, I, and I love to win it. So it's little things like, this is very simple, but I put the oatmeal in the microwave for one minute and I try to empty the dishwasher before that buzzer goes off. <laughs> so, you know, I do those kinds of things because I'm just, it keeps that competitiveness and I can do it. I have that whole dishwasher emptied in under one minute. So it takes my husband an hour. So I might as well just, do, you know. <laughs> So it's, it's little games like that to keep that energy going and competitiveness. And, and for me, it really truly is deadlines. Like I can talk all day yeah. long, but boy, you put my name next to it and you give me a deadline, it's going to be done the day before probably. Just yeah. That's just how we like to operate. So um, really, it's our team. It's our energy. It's continuing to, to dream big too. Um, we do. We think about like with the team, we set goals, um, not only salesperson goals, but we have um, annual meetings with all of our staff. And we always, you know, we always say like, okay, what's your word for this year? Um, one might be details. One might be, I don't vision. know, vision or different things. Um, so, yeah, and, and I do feel it's up to us to kind of help keep the team motivated. I think if we don't have the energy, they're never going, right. they're never going to. Or it's going to be harder to keep it going. And um, we're pretty good about if someone's kind of draining that energy within the company. Um, you know, I, I heard before, you know, experts out there, uh, you know, hire, hire slower and fire quicker. And we, we really do try to do that. We try to weed those people out and confront those issues very quickly because it can, it can really drag the whole team down. So I think, I think being motivated is one side of it, but also preventing demotivation in other areas too. And I think being people of action helps everyone stay motivated. If you work with people or for people who you know if you bring a problem, that they'd be open to a solution too and to implement it immediately. And we, we usually say that. We're like, eh, we'll try. If it doesn't work, we'll change it tomorrow. You know. So yeah. we really, truly do try to live that. Well, one of the things that's really simple is we have really super bright colors on our walls. So when you walk into, in the building we bought, used to be an old general store at the turn of the century. So it's a really cool building, but you walk in, you see that pop of lime. How could you not be happy <laughs> when you see that? And, and customers have walked in and they've been like, whoa, like take a step back. <laughs> Are you guys? And, and what they find out is it's genuine. We're just, we love what we do. So we genuinely have a lot of joy. And I think that just comes through when you're talking with clients. And, and I do, I get, I get pumped up when a client sees that and they reflect back on us and they say, wow, I've never met such an energetic team. I'm like, yeah, we are that team. We are those people. <laughs> so we have about five minutes and we're gonna I have a few more questions here. And the reason why I ask this, this next question is because CommonsQ feels really strongly about community. That's why we do events like these. That's why we do lots of events. And that's why the community platform itself is really important, is connecting distributors. And the entrepreneurial journey can sometimes be very lonely. But if you look at successful entrepreneurs, without a doubt, you will find that there are other people investing in their lives that contributed to their success. Often, this is the wind behind us. This is the wind in our sails. Who has contributed to your success? And the reason I'm asking this is because so that 
someone out there can say, I need to go do that. I need to go find the resources. I need to go find the help. I need to go find the mentor. Let's go down the line and say, who's contributed to your life and your success, and, and what has that meant to your business success? Um, well, we're looking at him right here. Yeah. I mean, you can't say we me. did. No, but we did. Yeah. We did. We would get on a quarterly call with Bobby, yeah, we and we'd say, what are we doing? We looked to our suppliers. When suppliers come into our office, we say, what do you see out there that we're missing the boat on? What, are, what do we need to do? Yeah, that's do? great. So you ask it. And we also partner with other distributors. You know, come on. We're in the same industry. Let's work together on this. And we've, so we have, we've talked with other distributors. What are you doing that really works with you? There's so much business out there. We can all handle it. There's a lot of it. So we asked that. We also, um, what was the other thing we, oh, um, so we also have um, someone who's been in the business for a very, very long time that we meet with once a month and yeah. just to go over things with us as, as our trusted advisor. So we awesome. look to, to wise, we look, seek wise counsel. Yeah, yeah. It's a very friendly industry too. I it reach is. out to folks because they want yeah. to help each other. Tim? So I'm not going to use an example from this industry, and I'll tell you more what I did. Uh, the guy's name was Everett Grossclose, and he was my first boss at Dow Jones. And I, after seven years of being on the editorial side of the company, wanted to move to the business side. And he said, you know, it's very difficult to move from the editorial side to the business side here. Um, you're going to have to quit. And I quit. <laughs> and um, I came back six months later because I left and I got a phone call that said, gosh, now we've got this marketing job. You've been away for six months. You now are eligible to sort of move on to the dark business side of the place. So sometimes the advice you get may seem a little out of the ordinary, yeah. uh, but can be extremely helpful. Now, I'm just going to tell you one thing that I did. Um, Ev has since uh, retired, and I have not worked with him for a really long time. But it was coming up on my 25th anniversary of having worked at Dow Jones. I started June 4th of uh, 1984. And so it was coming up on 25 years, and I went to a jewelry store, and I bought an extremely expensive watch, and I engraved it on the back, and I said, happy 25th anniversary. And I flew out to San, um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he had retired, and told him I was going to be in town and took him out to dinner and drinks with his wife and gave him a watch for my 25th anniversary of having oh, worked for him. Great. And I don't share that to get all that, awesome. awesome, although that's really sweet. But I think it's really important as yeah. you think about the answer to the question personally about who has been your mentor and who has really impacted your life, I think too often we don't tell them and yeah. we don't actually thank them. And so I would just urge everyone to think about who that person is and what do I do to go back to that person in high school or college or wherever they were in your life. And Thank them because we don't thank people enough. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's a great story. And yeah. my mentor's in this room, so now I'm going to have to buy a watch for her. And a <laughs> Thanks a lot. She takes gold, diamonds, <laughs> dinner Thanks per se. Um, okay. So uh, Joan has been an amazing mentor since day one, sort of like everyone at Access Open Door Policy, scheduling calls on just talking about where my goals are, where we've come since our last call, asking a lot of questions. And I have to plug Promo Kitchen here. There's an amazing community for so many people right now. You guys have mentioned that it's a very friendly industry. So I've taken sort of a larger role in helping connect mentors and mentees. And it's been very rewarding uh, just to see how people have come, how far they've come and how they're enjoying it, asking questions about how they can be better mentees, what sort of things mentors can do. So that's been really rewarding for me. And then I think just because you brought up the kindness thing. I, I want to just throw out that Axis has been doing something for about seven, eight months, which has been extremely rewarding, and I love it. it 
I think all of us has been in a situation where we've either done the miracle job for someone or a supplier has helped us and that email goes out saying, thanks so much, four exclamation points, move on to the next thing. You need to stop and really show that emotion and gratitude. And so we started this campaign where, quite frankly, the title of the email for me was, who saved your ass this week? And so I said, tell me a story about anyone, whether it was UPS driver that came back for that package or yeah. the person that stayed late or the person that gave you the special pricing. Give me their name, give me their address, I'll do the rest. So we send a handwritten thank you card on behalf of Access. And I would say out of every, for every card we send, we get a, an email within a week or two weeks saying, that really made my day. I can't believe you told my boss about the job I did. Yeah. And so I get to tell Joan that you sharing that story made someone feel good, and now you feel good because you made that person feel good, and I feel good because that person made me feel good. And five people just felt good, and then they told their wives and their sons, and that's just an amazing campaign that I think more people in this industry should do because the thank you email can only go so far. You really need to go above and beyond and really express that gratitude. Yeah. Mitch. Well, those are great stories. Um, so my mentor, I have two. Um, my mentor was my, uh, is my brother. Um, he is the business partner that started Printable Promotions. Um, he has done well enough for himself and has moved on to the next chapter in his life. He's actually retired. He's doing consulting about some of the things that we've learned throughout the process of the business. But he started out by uh, slinging boxer shorts, shot glasses, and T-shirts to college students. And uh, business evolved into one that's now focused only on corporate, of course. Um, and my second uh, mentee is really the people I work with every day. These, there's two of them right here. Um, I would have to say, you know, it's, it's very tempting that when there is an opening at a company to hire the first person who walks through the door to fill the seat. But the truth is, if you don't hire for cultural fit and attitude, you're going to regret it in the end. Yeah. And uh, we have a very rigorous interview process. And at the end, the right people come out. And we have a very open and honest communication in the office. Uh, we do a lot of information sharing. Um, and I think because of the culture we've created at the company, um, I refer to these guys all the time as, as my mentees and helping me sort of navigate um, some business challenges. Um, Stacy right here. Raise your hand, Stacy. <laughs> stacy has been with us for... Um, Let's see, it's 1999, so what is that, 18, 18 years? 18 years, uh, 18 out of the 24. So um, Stacy and Scott, my brother, have been through all of these five stages, and we've gone back and forth a few times, <laughs> and uh, as Tim pointed out, there's really, the business just constantly evolves, and so that's my influences, for sure. That's awesome. Um, anytime you do a panel like this, there's always a panelist who, who thought, I wish I would have said that, or I wish I got a chance to answer that question. Did anyone have that regret? And would you like to share anything before we open it up the, to the floor? Well, I have just one thing I want to share. Yes. I, I, yes. I, I was going through, we, we recently moved offices, and I was going through some papers, and I had some signs on my wall that I had taken down years earlier. And uh, I, I, I had this one, and I just came across it again, and, I, and it's still as true today as it was when I first put it up. Good procedures help develop employees who enjoy their jobs, are productive, and stay with the company longer. Productive employees then become loyal, and loyal employees generate the experience and value that clients want. Once satisfied, customers come back repeatedly. There you go. Good, thank you. Thank you, Mitch. Anyone else? I just found myself nodding my head a lot as you spoke earlier. I think um, one of the things that Access is when we do see clients, they feel that energy, and we're certainly not going with, in with yeah. product a lot. It's just about making the connection, and we often hear, I can tell you love your job, and that's amazing, and I want to work with someone that feels so passionate. So it's, it's really nice to see that across many boards. Great. Anyone else before we open up? No? Okay. Questions? Yes, sir. 
Um, I have a few, and I wish I remembered all the questions I had while you guys were talking. <laughs> I had quite a few rolling in my head. Um, it's always amazing to me in this industry, being in it for 35 years now. 35? Um, that when You're a survivor. Yeah. <laughs> just hanging on by a thread. <laughs> and when I hear people that are making 35, 40%, I just wonder who in the world are those clients? Because I don't know any of our corporate clients that would ever pay that. Now the average is the people that walk in the door, yeah, you can make a little bit more margin there, or some of the smaller clients. When we're talking about really large customers, it is it been an impossible task for us to get to that kind of margin ever. And it would completely change our business model if that could happen. And Secondly, when you talk, you know, having you be here from the CEO of uh, ASI is pretty grand, but it's, a, it's very interesting to me that I feel like our industry, when it started, uh, well, every, every industry was toppling in uh, 2008. It was financially struggling. And ASI seemed to open up the floodgates to me, and it seemed like everybody and, and their brother was becoming... ASI certified rep and, and getting into our industry from their working from their house. And uh, we are amazed that uh, the ad agency business that we were going after at one time just completely went away because they all started becoming ASI driven companies. And I'm just wondering if you guys have ever taken a look at that. Let me, let me answer, let me, let me do this. You got two parts to your question. Yeah. Great question. The first part of your question, I'm gonna let Tim respond to that. Uh, the first part of your question had to do with margins. I think that's a crucial question. I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about it, but you grew your margin seven, by seven points within a year. Do you feel comfortable talking about how and why? Was that simply looking at the numbers and then going, we just need to increase our margins? And um, We started using Common Skew. So that helped our margins. One of the things that we started working on, I guess it was early this year in the first quarter, was preferred suppliers. So that was number one Great. that really helped drive that and push more business to a source that would work with us. Um, probably the other side of what we've done this year that we haven't done in the past is be more proactive in our selling. So reactive selling is just taking the order or, hey, I have an event. Yeah. Um, we're doing more upfront doing virtuals or ideas, things that we're sending to them before they yeah. even know they need it. And that has really driven our margins. And that gives you the luxury of picking which category can have fatter margin opportunity than just getting the commodity-based ideas, things that come in. That's correct. And by the time you've presented that, they don't have time to go look for it elsewhere. Nobody else is going to be able to match it. So that's really helped us a lot. But Thanks. as far as margins, um, year-to-date, we're just over 40%. Awesome. So that's great job, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for answering that uh, margin question. Yeah, let me see yeah. if I can tackle that a bit. Um, so, uh, 14 years into our business in 2007, we decided to really sit down and write a vision statement for what we wanted the company to be. And in that vision statement, we said we are targeting companies between five million and 100 million dollars in sales. And those numbers seem sort of arbitrary, but I can tell you a little bit more about them. So, any company less than five million, we felt didn't have a big enough promotional budget for them to be a long-term client for us. Anything over 100 million, somewhat arbitrary, but we found that those companies tended to have procurement and purchasing departments when they got to that number. Mm -hmm. And that meant that our value proposition yeah. of being consultative sellers went right out the window. Yep. So if you're selling to bigger companies 
whose procurement departments, their sole objective is to keep the, the numbers down, it's going to be hard to, to bump up that margin. But if you can somehow expand to maybe market to medium-sized companies or small, medium-sized companies, you may find those expand. We found they had the same experience with stores. If we sold a store, the, the folks that were doing a million in revenue per company on a company store basis, a uh, million plus, they would get into the procurement and that, that went to an entirely different model. To us, half a million to 750,000 was the sweet spot. Because just, and they needed us badly. Uh, margins, anyone else want to tackle a margin question? I think after when you're trying to grow your business and you sort of hit that one million dollar stable personally for on a team that's sort of a milestone and so you start to get in this mentality where you're working with clients and feeling like you have to commit to that 33 34% margin which aren't bad margins by any means uh, but then think about how you can try to get away with that extra point on the next order and the extra point in the next order and sort of build it in. Yeah. I'm very fortunate that I work with a team that pushes me a little bit. So they'll turn around and say, I'm quoting this client. Do you think I can go in at 37? I'm like, sure, go for it. <laughs> so, and, and, and it works. Um, I mean, just this morning, someone needed Rush repeat t-shirts and, and they needed it in a rush and we had done the previous job and they need them money on Monday. Well, guess what? Mama gets a new pair of shoes. <laughs> Because <laughs> we're going to get it done for you, and we're also going to make that extra point. So know those situations where you can get away with not just one or two extra points, but maybe the third point. Like you mentioned, it's not going to be on those larger clients all the time. You're going to be in the bid situation. Work with your key suppliers. Ask them, can we get better on EQP this time? Most times they're going to work with you. Can you weigh this repeat setup this time, the repeat, uh, you know, whatever it might be. So those are, those are little ways. And incrementalism is the key. Yeah. We, had a, we had a customer one time uh, give us the opportunity to sponsor an event, and, and they were a half-million-dollar customer, and it was a great opportunity, which meant it cost us a lot of money. <laughs> so they'd done this so often, we tried to figure out a way to respond to this. The way we responded to it was our entire team said, okay, incrementalism, we're going to raise them by 3% over the course of the next 12 months, and sure enough, we did. And we just started to learn this practice with customers. Anyone else before we leave that topic? And you let Tim respond to that. Yeah, let me, let me talk about margins for a second because I think that this industry also gets so fixated. I, you, you can go into lots. I've been in lots of industries. I've been in lots of industry meetings. This industry talks more about margin than any industry I've ever seen or experienced. <laughs> and I think that we need to also sometimes step back and say to ourselves, what is the right margin for the business to get the maximum dollars? So yeah. none of you are buying boats or paying for your utility bills with margin. You're paying for it with dollars. And so I would just urge you sometimes to sort of step back and say to yourselves, what is the right margin, but in reality, what is going to, what margin will drive my business the fastest? Because yeah. you might find that you might really find that you could really drive your business smarter without so much focus on the margin. I'm not saying it shouldn't be thought of and shouldn't be important and shouldn't make right decisions in terms of vendors and how you work with those vendors. But I just think that this industry is so fixated on margin, it's just, it's astounding to me. At the end of the day, it's really about how many dollars you're generating and are you getting a fair return for the investment you're making. And I, I think sometimes we sort of strangle ourselves by worrying about the margin. And margin's relative because if your operating costs are higher and you're giving away 55% of your commissions to a team, your margins are, re are not the same conversation with folks. Yeah. And, and let me get to back to your question in terms of, of first of all, sort of fundamentally, you know, our approach at, you know, who we do business with as a supplier, as a distributor, has not fundamentally changed in probably at least two decades. I think that what you find is that people in downturns start looking for new revenue streams for themselves in places they probably haven't looked before. But from my perspective, they still qualify to be part of this industry as a distributor, as a supplier. We see that a lot on the supplier side. So we'll have many suppliers that will call us and say, I'm in this marketplace and I want to find a different revenue stream for my product, and I believe it should be in the promotional space because it can be 
uh, either properly packaged from a gift perspective or an incentive perspective, or it can be imprinted with a logo. So we see that, on the, but on the distributor side, absolutely. In 2008, 2009, did people contact ASI and want to become a distributor because they are looking for new ways to do business? Absolutely, they did. Um, you know, our viewpoint is, you know, we help people that are in this marketplace if they are going to buy promotional products for resale to somebody else. And frankly, I think that many ad agencies, um, some, ad, some ad agencies should be promotional products distributors, but at the end of the day, most of them should not be. We had a number of, uh, we were approached by a big organization that, that uh, represents wedding planners uh, probably seven or eight years ago. And there were maybe 20 or 30 wedding planners that came to one of our shows. They really thought this is gonna be a really good uh, activity for them. And at the end of, the, uh, of this sort of trial period, um, one of the larger wedding planners, I mean, I'm, we're talking about million dollar weddings. This is not like, you know, this is not like, you know, no offense to anybody in the room, but not like anybody's wedding here, okay? This is like <laughs> Beyonce's getting married, okay? And the person that ran this organization said to me, I don't buy flowers from the guy in Ecuador that grows flowers. I buy them from a florist because I want someone else to handle all the headache of doing this. So in fact, in some ways, I think it's actually beneficial to our industry to have somebody realize how hard it is. Um, but you know, that's our rule of thumb. Our rule of thumb is if you've got a product and you're a supplier that we think could be interesting to this marketplace, we'll help you enter the marketplace and provide ways for you to reach distributors to explain that. And the same on the distributor side. If you are in business and you are going to buy product or resell, you know, we, we know what works and what doesn't work. We know who works out and who doesn't. You know, if someone contacts us and they don't know artwork or they don't have their client's logo, the chances of them being successful in this space are, it really is almost zero. Because they don't get it, they're never gonna get it, it's not gonna work out. Um, so you're right, you know, I'm sure there were a lot more people that, that you saw in that time period. And it wasn't because we changed the people we do business with, it's just the matter that a lot of people in the industries surrounding us yeah. said, I really wanna sell promotional products. Print was a great example. Yeah, print's Thank a you, great Tim. example. And, and, uh, but we have to close. And, well, and I, I, I wanted to jump in with a distributor experience and while I think it, it can come across as frustrating to see there being more competition, so whether it's ASI that's responsible for that or whether it's PPAI that's responsible for that, I'd submit two um, areas of experience that suggest that that's a positive thing. Number one, um, with more distributors that are out there talking about promotional products, it, it, it provides a bigger megaphone and it means that there's more opportunity, more demand for distributors that are in the room. And I've certainly experienced that on the right sleeve side of, of our experience. And I think number two, and I think this applies to a lot of distributors that have that $10 million mindset, they're distributors that have created a great moat around their business already. Mm -hmm. They specialize in something, they're amazing at something, they've got yeah. clients that most other distributors could never handle because they have built this moat around their business. And I think this might be a funny thing to say, but if you've got a small, I mean, Chad, I think that you were suggesting you've got a small home-based distributor. There's nothing wrong with a, a distributor that's out of their home. But let's say you're assuming it's some man or woman who's on the side and they're cutting margins to the bone and they're competing with you and driving margins down. They actually make a company like Right Sleeve look amazing because us compared to them, it, 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 it simply drives our value proposition home that much clearer. And we're almost thankful for those people because they're not competing in the same league as we are in the particular market segment that we have defined as being the thing that we lead in. Yeah. So, um, Well, I wanna thank our panelists for joining us today. And I, I know these folks, if you had a question that you didn't get a chance to ask, please stop them, because I know none of the, all of them would love to answer your question. And uh, was this good? Was this helpful? All right, thank you guys. Thank you.
So stick around. Uh, we have a special treat uh, here in just a few minutes for you. Not just the treat. This wasn't a special treat? Uh, it was. The minute you walked in the room, Tim, that was... <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Skewcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to Skewcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends. Thanks so much for listening.